Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue through our series in the book of Colossians, uh, and our, our series is called Firmly Established. And so uh, the, the key verse for our series, uh, if you've been with us, you know this, uh, but the key verse, sort of the anchor point for our whole series has come from Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7. So I'm actually going to start with that. And so Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7, it says this, Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so our entire series is about being firmly established in Christ. In fact, last week we took a deep dive into this exact passage, and so uh, that's where we were in the series last week, and we actually... um, you know, followed those two verses up with verse 8, which says this. So, talked about being firmly established, rooted, right, in verse 6 and 7. And then verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so, Last week, we looked at a few of the empty, deceitful traditions in our own sort of present-day context, context, right? And so even those uh, that seem like plausible arguments out there, they kind of seem like they're good and even uh, genuine, loving things on the surface, but they can be twisted forms of righteousness, right? They can be uh, demonically fueled and, and hostile to Jesus ultimately as the true king. And so we talked a little bit about what that looks like last week. Uh, and so in our passage this morning, though, Paul continues in this kind of line of thought and he presents the Colossians and us with another very blatant presentation of the gospel. So we talk about the gospel Uh, a lot of things may come to mind. Maybe some people think like music, you know, gospel music. Or when you think gospel, maybe you just think truth. Or or maybe you have a very succinct idea of what gospel means. And so this morning, we're going to dive into what it actually means. What is meant by gospel or the gospel? The Greek is euangelion. You don't have to say that, but you can if you want. Um, So this is what it is. It's good news, right? So we've actually been presented with this blatant presentation of the gospel already in Colossians. He did it in chapter 1. But here again, Paul reiterates this message in its simplicity and yet extreme depth. And so he presents it here as the genuine article in a world that's full of twisted, counterfeit truths. Counterfeit gospels. He calls them false gospels in other places, right? And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the authentic gospel message in its fullness because there's a lot of twisted half truths that are floating around in society, right? As the saying goes, if you take a half truth and you make it a whole truth, it becomes an untruth. I'm pretty sure that's a saying. If it's not, it should be, right? So (laughs) now you may be thinking, Again, you might be here, maybe you've been a Christian for a really long time in a, in a solid gospel-centered church, and you're going, all right, I know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I, I get it. I hope that's true. Right? I hope that's true for every one of you. And if it is, then I hope that you're reminded of the beauty and goodness of God in the gospel this morning. 
because we're going to dive headfirst into the pool of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes when people, again, they think about the gospel, they think of it as though it's the shallow end of the pool, right? Or even more like the diving board or the entryway into the pool. Have you ever thought of the gospel that way? Like you're like, I received the gospel when I was 13. I heard that gospel, and so now I'm like, I want to I mature. I want to grow. I got the gospel. It's time to move on, right? Sometimes people think that way. But to become a more mature Christian, you know, you don't leave those, quote, elementary teachings behind because the truth is the gospel isn't just the diving board or the entryway. The gospel is the pool we're diving into. It is Christianity. Like, it's simple enough for a child to grasp, and yet the depth and the wonder of it is greater than any human can truly fully fathom. In fact, if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you're going to be plumbing the depths of this gospel message or what God has done for us in Christ for the rest of eternity. I mean, 10 billion years from now, that's hard for you to grasp. That's hard for us to, 10 billion years from now, your soul, if you're in Christ, is going to be alive and well and even more aware than you are now and you know what you're going to be focused on and passionate about. The gospel. You're going to be like, it is way better than I even thought. And you're still just going to be brushing the surface of it. We're going to talk about that. In fact, I mean, First Peter, Peter tells them in First Peter 1.12, he even says that angels who are standing in the presence of God Almighty long to look into these things. Like to grasp the beauty of what God has done for humanity. That's their longing and their desire. Angels. Okay? So the, the, the ultimate truth that Paul's calling us to be rooted in is this good news. Because it's what brings us access and intimacy with God and eternal life even now. It's through this gospel message that God gets the greatest glory. And it's all about his glory. Amen? And so I want you to know and have the eyes to see that you also have a very supernatural enemy who hates you. You have an enemy who hates you and an enemy who hates Jesus. And his goal, his top priority is to twist the beauty and truth of the message of grace into a self-centered lie. It's what he does. It's why he's called the father of lies. Like Satan's top tactic isn't to create chaos in this world. That's not his number one thing. That's not his A goal, right? His top tactic is to twist the gospel into something that it's not in order to keep people away from Jesus. People that are satisfied with a false gospel, he's happy to leave them alone because it's good. They are close enough to be completely far from Jesus. And even if they are moral and upright, it doesn't matter because they're far from Jesus. You follow this? I want you to. I want to show you this this morning. That's why the world we live in is filled with so many counterfeit or twisted gospels. But they're also, hear me, really easy to spot 
<laughs> this isn't about making you paranoid or like skeptical and critical at every turn. Okay? False gospels are really easy to spot when you're familiar with the real thing. So let's take a look at the real thing. Let's take a look at the full gospel of Jesus Christ. It's right here in this passage. Because the, the way you expose and expel the counterfeit is by beholding and receiving the real thing. So maturity in Christianity doesn't come by moving on from the fundamental simplicity of the gospel. It comes by plumbing the depths of it, by becoming fluent in it, by seeing it everywhere and in everything and falling deeper and deeper in love with God and his glory because of it. So this isn't just one form of Christianity, all right? This isn't just like, well, this is our tradition and our form of Christianity. This is Christianity. This is Christianity. Like everything else is just an empty, deceitful human tradition. Half-truths, which are ultimately no truths at all. Okay? So, let's dive in. Turn with me to Colossians 2, verse 13 through 15. We're going to read through it, and then we'll drop back and walk through it together, okay? So here's what I want you to get this morning if you get nothing else. This is what I want you to get. Simple yet profound. The gospel of Christ's kingdom in its simplest form is Jesus in my place. Four words. Jesus in my place. Now, some people might be like, well, that's a little reductionistic, isn't it? And we're going to talk about it. So quick roadmap for the rest of our time. i got three points for you. These points may sound a little familiar to you. Um, if you've been with us for any length of time, they're going to sound very familiar to you here, especially if you've been with us here at Risen. Um, but here are the, the three points for our roadmap this morning. One, God became a man and lived the life we couldn't live. Two, Jesus died the death we deserve to die. Three, Jesus conquered sin and death through the resurrection, paving the way to eternal life that begins now. If you've never heard this before, if this is new to you, then this sermon is for you. I'm glad you're here. But if you're like, come on, Pastor John, I've heard this a thousand times. You say it in every single sermon. Can we just move on? No! No! And if that's you this morning, then this sermon is definitely for you. Because you've totally missed the point if you want to move on from that. And I hope that you'll become absolutely obsessed with the multifaceted beauty and unending glory of this gospel of Christ's kingdom. You see, I'm convinced that the angels, uh, like, they realize it's all about Jesus. That's why they long to look into it for eternity. And so this, his glory is exhibited in it because this is in its most palpable form through this gospel of grace. And so it's why I've presented these truths in one way or another for every sermon that I've preached for the past 12 years. It's really all about Jesus. And the cross is the center point of all eternity. Not just human history. It's the center point of all eternity. Okay? So we preach about it, and we sing about it, and we marvel at it, and we glory in it. In fact, as we go, I'm probably going to even weave some lyrics into some popular worship songs that we like and even have sung today uh, just to drive the beauty of this whole thing home. So, okay, uh, Colossians 2, 
verse 13. Let's start there. We're going to read through uh, verse 13 through 15, and then we'll drop back and we'll break it down. So, verse 13 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, which is Jesus Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So much goodness in this. There's so much goodness in this. Like it's just jammed with beauty and glory and power. There's so many aspects of this, this truth that are communicated in this one little section here. And there's, honestly, there's no way for me to even brush the surface of it, but we're going to try, okay? So let's go for it. Verse 13, let's drop back. Verse 13, it says this, and you, talking to the Colossians, but also talking to you, okay? You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now that's a weird term, right? We're, we're, I hope it's clear, first of all, that Paul's talking about spiritual death here. All right? Like, he's not saying that the Colossians were once physically corpses, and then they were, they were raised physically from the dead. That's not what he's articulating here. This isn't like some walking dead stuff. Like, this is, okay? He's speaking in spiritual terms. However, he is saying that though they are physically alive, they are spiritually dead. The imagery holds. I want you to get this image in your head. If you're spiritually dead, follow this, then once physical death happens, which is inevitable, unless Jesus comes back before we die, then that's it. Dead physically and dead spiritually means eternal death and destruction and punishment forever. And I'm going to explain that as we go, okay? But it may seem silly at first to think that I need to clarify that he's not talking about physical death here. And yet, the image of physical corpses coming to life is exactly the image he's going for. Because it's not just a metaphor in the sense that they have, in fact, been raised spiritually to new life, and that they were, in fact, spiritually dead, which in many ways is worse than physical death. But because of Jesus, even though they may die physically, they will, and you will if you're in Christ, in fact, be raised physically to new life physically as he returns. Raised to eternal life both spiritually and physically. So the image that kind of seems silly, like the idea of them being dead physically and then raised physically, like we're, we're saying like, well, of course this is spiritual language. But the reality is, is that because they're raised spiritually, because they have spiritual life and they're not spiritually dead now, but they were, right? You will be physically raised one day. Did I lose you? You're like physically, spiritually, trying to track? Follow me. So this is secured as the future for all Christians. Like, but for everyone who's outside of Christ, like the Colossians once were, okay, they are spiritually dead and their future is not eternal life, but eternal death and destruction. And like physical death, there's nothing you can do to make yourself alive. 
dead is dead. Doesn't matter how hard you try. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstrap. A dead person isn't like, give me a second. I can do this. Dead is dead. And spiritually dead is spiritually dead. There's no in-between state. You can't be kind of dead. There is dead and there is alive. And though they were alive physically, spiritually they were dead and dead is dead. It's like being pregnant. You can't be kind of pregnant. Right? You either are pregnant or you're not pregnant. And so the truth here is that everyone in all creation stands condemned in their sin, spiritually dead. You either are spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. There's no middle ground. That's why if you ask somebody if they're a Christian and they're like, well, kind of, then the real answer is just no. Because you either are or you're not. You see this? So Paul uses two very intentional phrases to explain their spiritual state of death or the, when, it, when they were in that spiritual state, in their past, okay? And the first is trespasses. So he says, you were dead in your trespasses. And then the second phrase that he uses, he says, you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now those, again, those phrases might seem strange a bit here at first, but uh, they're actually really intentional and they're packed with meaning. So I want to try and unpack this a bit. Remember, he's talking to the Colossians, and the massive majority, if not all of them, were Gentiles, meaning they were not Jewish. So if you're familiar or not familiar with the Old Testament, then this isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. Because even these phrases are a part of a much bigger narrative that goes all the way back to Genesis. It's almost like we're supposed to read our Bibles or something. And so it's a narrative that many of these new Colossian believers would have been learning about really for the first time. They didn't have their Bible. They, these guys were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. They were Greeks. Right? And so they didn't have this stuff. So, so as they're learning about who Jesus is and what he did, they would, have, they would have had limited New Testament scriptures at the time. All they had was the letters and things that the apostles were writing. So their scriptures would have been the Old Testament. So they're learning all about, they're probably starting with Genesis and reading about Genesis and reading about all the things that he would have done. And, and so here Paul is writing them this letter and uses the language that the Old Testament they were learning uses. Okay? And so he talks about how God created, or, or, or they would have been learning about how God had created humanity and placed them in a garden, and everything was beautiful and good and glorious, and he told them to eat anything you want, do whatever you want, experience my goodness in and through creation. Story of Adam and Eve, right? But God set a boundary. There was a tree, and he said that tree is off limits. Eventually, both Adam and Eve disobeyed, and they ate from that tree. They crossed the boundary. They trespassed. They decided that they knew better than God, even about their own well-being. They distrusted that he knew best for them and had their best intentions in mind, and they allowed the enemy to tempt them, or at least, yeah, to tempt them. And then the idea was that God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best intentions in mind. So they leaned into that, and in their discontent and envy and pride, they rejected the good boundaries that God placed in the garden, and they wandered into the dangerous sort of shadow lands of sin and rebellion against a holy God, the holy God. And so all humanity has since been doing that. Ever since, 
All of humanity has been doing the same thing. In fact, fast forward from the beginning of Genesis to Genesis chapter 12. And the world is broken. It's fallen. It's rebellious. It's hostile toward God. The whole world is. All have wandered from God, living lives according to their own empty and deceitful traditions, fueled by the same forces of evil that tempted Eve in the garden. And so by Genesis 12, by the time this chapter takes place in Genesis, those evil powers have gripped and enslaved all of humanity. But God, say, but God, befriended a man he renamed Abraham. And he gave him a new identity, and he set him apart. Remember, the Colossians would have been learning all this stuff for the first time. And so, so God led good old Abe to a new land and a land of promise and promised Abe that he would bless him and his offspring to be a blessing to the entire world. That's really important. Abraham and his family and descendants would be blessed by God for a purpose. God would bless them to be a blessing to the whole world because through his line, God would save the entire world. Seems pretty awesome, right? But by the time we get to Genesis 15, so that was Genesis 12, you get to Genesis 15, and Abraham's an old man, and he doesn't have any children, and he's like, God, things aren't looking too promising right now. Like, how's this going to work? So God says, see the stars in the sky, and that's how big your family's going to be. And then Abraham, it says, believed God. And that belief, it says, was counted to him as righteousness. Because even when he had reasons not to believe him, he did believe him. And so Abraham then even wants to make a pact with God. This is, he's believed so much, he's like, let's, let's seal this deal. Okay? And so he wants to make a pact with God about all of it. And so God tells Abraham to go and get a bunch of animals. Track with this. It's about to get weird, but I promise it matters. So he tells him to go get a bunch of animals, right? Big ones, medium ones, small ones. And he says, slaughter them and line them up in a row. First a large animal like a cow, then a goat, then a ram, then a couple of birds. A turtle dove and a pigeon, to be specific. And you can read all about this in Genesis 15. But Abraham lines them all up, and he starts with the largest animal, then the medium-sized animals, all the way down to those two small birds. And God tells him to cut them into two pieces, okay, and put them right beside each other, set them one over against another. And so as he did, if you can imagine, you set half the cow here and half the cow here and then half the goat here and half the goat here and half that you see it, it's creating an aisle. And in the middle of that aisle would be like a, a stream or a river of blood that will flow forth from the sacrifice. This imagery is all over the Bible, even Revelation, Okay. So they would create this sort of, again, aisle, and then this, again, it, it seems like if you're just kind of hearing the story or watching Abraham do this all by himself, and he's working hard all day, you're thinking, that dude's lost his mind, okay? But the truth is, is that, in fact, this was actually a very typical way that ancient people of this time would enter into really important pacts or deals with each other, Okay? They would create this sort of aisle of blood, and then one party would walk down the aisle through the blood, basically saying, if I break my end of the deal, then the blood is on me. In other words, if I break my end of the deal, I die. Then the other party that was entering into this deal, 
they would do the same thing, saying, okay, if I break my end of the deal, then I die. Okay? P.S. Where do you think the concept of the red carpet comes from? It's not intended for celebrities. It's intended for covenants, which is why it's often used in weddings. It drives me crazy when people are walking down that red carpet and being like, we're so great. I'm like, no, God is. Okay, sorry. Time back in. I love the red. I'm, be quiet, John. That's not my notes. All right. So then, then the, the other party would do the same thing, right? So they do this, and then uh, Abraham waits, and he's, and he's waiting until finally the sun goes down. He's like shooing birds off of it, and he's just waiting because he's just like, okay, God, you told me to do this? I just did it, okay? And then finally the sun goes down. Abraham falls into a deep sleep. God puts him into a deep sleep, similar to the way God put Adam into a deep sleep when he made Eve. And so then he gets, it gets really dark, and God himself passes in between the pieces down the aisle of blood, and he does so in the form of a pot with a pillar of smoke coming out of it. Think pillar of smoke. Okay? And then he's saying, God was saying, if I break my end of the deal, then I die. And then, would have been Abraham's turn, right? His turn to walk down the aisle of blood. But remember, God put him to sleep. And God then passes down the blood aisle again. But this time he does it on Abraham's behalf. And this time he does it in the form of fire. Significance here. By doing so, he was saying, if I break my end of the pact, then I die. But if you break your end of the deal, and your people break your end of the deal, then I die on your behalf. In your place. See, this wasn't just a deal, this was a covenant. This is the covenant God Almighty made with Abraham and his offspring and his people. There's a reason why when God's people are set free from Egypt in the Old Testament, what are they led by? A pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. It was a reminder of the covenant. Powerful, isn't it? So there, there were a people that God called to be his own possession. He would be their God and they would be his people. They would be separated from the rest of the world that was ruled by the demonic powers and principalities and rulers and authorities of this dark age. They'd be called out and separated and said, this one's mine, back off. Israel, God's covenant people, would be separated out from the disinherited nations that surrounded them for a purpose. So God, after he established this covenant in blood, God then spelled out the actual boundary lines over which God would rule physically upon the earth through his people, which meant that outside of those boundary lines, the powers and principalities of darkness would rule over the disinherited nations, and he's called Israel to be his people, his nation. Follow this. And so their ultimate mission was always to liberate the captives and set them free from the tyranny and oppression of the spiritual authorities, powers and principalities, and the sin that bound them. That was always the point from Genesis 12 on. And how would all of that happen? Through the Messiah that would come through the line of Abraham and David. Which brings us back to Colossians 2. You guys tracking? All right. So the imagery here is that these Colossians were once uncircumcised in their flesh. They were outside of God's covenant boundaries. Remember the, the, the way that God set his people apart? One of the signs was circumcision. So if you were part of the nation of Israel, you were circumcised. If you were in the disinherited nations, you were uncircumcised. Hear the language? 
And so they were the Gentile people. The Colossians were the uncircumcised, disinherited nations. They were once not a people, but as Peter put it in 1 Peter, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So they were uncircumcised sinners outside of God's covenant family, spiritually dead in their trespasses and sin, condemned, disinherited, tormented, and spiritually hostile to the true king, spiritually dead and bound for physical death as well with no hope of true life, just eternal death and punishment because dead people can't make themselves alive. So the hostile heart towards God doesn't change unless God changes it. P.S. That's why it's so ridiculous when people say things like they're going to live in rebellion now against God, they're going to live it up, and then they're going to change their lives later. No, you're not. That's crazy. Like, if you're rejecting him now, what makes you think that you're going to love him later at all? The heart doesn't get better. It gets worse in its hostility unless God meets you. And if he's met you there and you reject it when he meets you there, What makes you think he's coming back? Now, his grace is sufficient. So when he meets you there, and he's consistently, constantly, always open-hearted, open-minded, open-armed to his children and to his people, and for anyone to repent at any time, he's saying, come to me at any time. But when you take that for granted, the heart doesn't get softer, it gets harder. So it's important to lean into even a glimmer of faith and love for him. Because that faith, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, it was put there by him. Don't take it for granted. Like even if it's just wanting to want him, that's enough for him. You lean into that and you don't ignore it and he will run with it and he will change everything. Even wanting to want, I believe God helped my unbelief. Powerful prayer. He loves it. He's like, I'll take that. That's enough for me. Let's go. Change your life. Now, here's the thing. This wasn't just about the nations, okay? Israel, catch this, God's covenant people, was also in the same predicament. The Old Testament is clear. Also, Israel, his chosen people, rejected their good king also. Just because they were circumcised in their flesh didn't mean that they had received him as the king of their hearts. Jeremiah made this the most clear. He was an Old Testament prophet. Listen to some of the passages from the book of Jeremiah. This is where he's talking to Israel. Listen to this. Jeremiah 4.4, it says this. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Jeremiah verse 6, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 10 says this, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Jeremiah 9, verse 26, it says this, Egypt, Judah, which is part of Israel, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised. 
And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So he lumps them in with everyone else. He's saying, you're missing it. Isaiah 53, verse 6, puts it like this. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We sang about it. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope with no place to begin. Condemned and enslaved by our own sinful rebellion and the powers and principalities we've given legal right to grip our hearts and torment and rule over us. This is the circumstance. Again, Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin. Lost without hope and no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. I want to start singing it right now. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so the first point, God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live. And he didn't just live the life you couldn't live. Follow this. He lived the life Abraham couldn't live. He lived the life all of Abraham's offspring couldn't live. He lived the life God's covenant people could not live, right down to their time in Egypt, temptation in the desert, and reclaiming of the promised land. Jesus perfectly fulfilled and redeemed everything his people and all people fell short of. It's called, big word, recapitulation. What he did was redeem it all, right down to the intimate detail. Think about this. Think, think, think about it. that covenant that Abraham made with God, or that God made with Abraham, it happened in the promised land. The land that God was going to give him, it happened right there. That's where God's covenant was established. Track with me, I'm telling you, it's going to make sense. Years later, God's covenant people were forced into Egypt because of a famine. So then God's people were in the promised land, then they go down into Egypt. God protected them in Egypt for a time, but they got comfortable there and they lost sight of their purpose and God's promise, which wasn't in Egypt. So their comfort eventually enslaved them. That's what happens to everyone who trades God's kingdom purposes for their own comforts. They get enslaved by those comforts. But God set them free through Moses. He intervened. Moses, incidentally, is a type and a shadow of Jesus. But Jesus is the greater Moses. We'll see this. So God's covenant people were led out of Egypt's enslavement through the desert of temptation for 40 years until finally crossing through the Jordan River where they were given their commission to go and establish God's kingdom upon the earth. It was like you cross the Jordan River, game on. All the way to Jerusalem. It was like a starting line for this mission to march all the way to Jerusalem where ultimately David would establish God's kingdom upon the earth. But again, it was all just a type and a fallen shadow of the real deal. Even David fell way short in his sin. And he did not accomplish the mission that God placed before him as king to rid the land. And so much sin and compromise happened. Moses also fell way short. Israel as a whole, God's covenant people, fell way short in their sin, even running to other gods in deep idolatry, inviting them even into the temple. But God. Say, but God. 
But God became a man and lived the life they couldn't live right down to the intimate details. Think about this. I hope this opens your eyes to some of the things Jesus did and why. Jesus was born in the promised land, in Bethlehem, where God established his covenant, not necessarily in Bethlehem, but in the promised land. Jesus came in, and this is where it begins, in the promised land. Then he's fled with his family to where? Egypt, where he and his family were protected for a time because the wicked powers and authorities wanted to destroy them. Remember when Herod tried to kill all the baby boys under two years old? So God brings them into Egypt to protect them, just like he brought his covenant people into Egypt to protect them from the famine for a time. But Jesus and his family didn't get comfortable in Egypt like God's people did before. He never lost sight of his purpose and his promise, and so they returned to the land. But the real kickoff for his mission and ministry happened at Christ's baptism. And who knows where Christ was baptized? The Jordan River. Not a coincidence. That's when things start getting real. He's 30 years old. But after that baptism, man, it's like game on. All the way to what? The cross in Jerusalem. And the first thing he does after he's baptized, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. Not a coincidence. But he never falls to that temptation, unlike Israel in their wilderness experience, who pathetically fell constantly in sin. But then Jesus, again, he crosses back over the Jordan and it was game on all the way to Jerusalem, but he would not fail in his mission to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. And he's invited us into that mission. This is a powerful picture of what we're doing and what he's done for us. He fully succeeded where Abraham and Moses and David fell short and every prophet and every king and every priest all fell short, but he fulfilled. Where you and I and all of humanity fell short, Jesus was victorious and perfect. His victory wasn't just in living the perfect life we couldn't live. His victory ultimately came through his substitutionary death on the cross, which leads me again to the second point. Jesus died the death we deserved to die. Look back with me to Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read it again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Colossians, God made alive together with him. Notice this isn't just about you. It's not just about the individual. This is about unity in God's family. It's not just about you. It's about unity in God's family, right? We, this is why living in covenant community with a local church is very important. All right, side note. It's another sermon. So it says, so God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So that's what he did, but how did he do it? Glad you asked. Here we go, verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, God didn't just ignore our sin. He wouldn't be good if he did that. Think about this. There's no justice in that. But he is a just God. It's a major part of his goodness and his love is to be just, righteous. So, so like, we want him to repay and bring about justice. If he doesn't punish wickedness, then he's not good. Right? He, he wouldn't be trustworthy or safe. 
And this is the point. You see, every religion in the world either views God as only just or only merciful. They can't fathom how he can be both. There's a contradiction in every other religion between God's mercy and his justice. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, they all deal with wickedness through mercy, but ultimately there's this contradiction between mercy and justice. How can he be both just and merciful? How does that work? Justice demands that there's a debt to be paid. Mercy, by definition, is simply setting aside justice that is deserved, but only for a time, because justice is still deserved. God's mercy can't cancel out God's justice. You see this? This is difficult. When he shows mercy, that justice is withheld, but only for a while. Romans 3, 23 through 26 puts it like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We just learned that. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, which means atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, if you've ever had a a massive debt to repay, like student loans or anything like that, you understand this language of forbearance. Because if your debt is put into forbearance, it doesn't mean that debt goes away. Often, principal balance is just loading up on you. Right? So it doesn't mean the debt goes away. If it's put into forbearance, it just means you don't have to pay it back right now. But you still have to pay it back. Somebody can pay it back for you if they have enough money. But it's unrighteous to just wipe it away. Somebody's going to have to pay it. Might be the government, the taxpayer. I don't know. Getting into politics now, but you get the idea. Somebody's going to pay it. So the cross was God's way of showing his righteousness. Because you can't just say, oh, it's gone. It's not gone. The cross was God showing his righteousness that he had not just dismissed the debt that humanity owed. It was just in forbearance. Look at verse 26 of Romans 3. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is the difference between mercy and grace. Mercy simply puts justice in forbearance for a time. But God's grace pays for it all. So for those who have received grace by faith in Christ, their sins aren't just overlooked, they're paid for. Justice has been served upon Christ, and it's unjust for anyone to hold those sins against you if your faith is in him and you've received his grace. That's why, by the way, it's so important for believers to forgive one another. Because if you don't, you're rejecting the sufficiency of the cross. See, every sin will be punished because God is righteous. Either that punishment will come upon that individual sinner in eternity, or Jesus will pay for it at the cross. The record of debt, the sinner's IOU, is nailed to the cross, paid in full. This is the gospel. And only Jesus has the power to do that. 
Only the life of Jesus Christ has the eternal weight of glory that's substantial enough to cover even the seemingly most trivial of sins. Because sin isn't measured by the value of the sinner. The weight of sin is determined by the value of the one sinned against. And the one we sinned against is infinitely glorious. You don't have enough glory to pay it back. That means only Jesus has enough glory to pay the debt that was owed because he is God. And that's exactly what he did at the cross. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as the song Man of Sorrows, which might be my very favorite song ever, puts it, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Woo! That guy never gets old, it can't. Think in the ancient world. I want you to hear this. In the ancient world, having a record of debt was a much bigger deal than it is to us. Like for us, the worst thing that could happen is you file bankruptcy or start over with some like really bad credit, right? But in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Gentile world, if you owed a debt that you couldn't repay, you would be forced into indentured servitude or slavery. You'd be enslaved until you worked off all that you owed. And if you didn't, then even your children would be saddled with your debt and your slavery forever and ever and ever. This is a picture of sin. In fact, later in this letter, we're going to read about a man who was in the exact circumstance that I'm talking about. His name was Onesimus. And Paul writes this letter to Onesimus' master because he was a slave. He was an indentured servant. And he writes to his uh, master Philemon, who was also a Christian. And Onesimus was a fugitive slave, and he robbed Philemon, and he fled. But he met Paul in Rome, and he's been transformed by the gospel. But then Paul writes a letter to his master named Philemon. And here's what part of the letter says here. And Philemon uh, 1, verse 18 and 19 says this. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. It's about as Christ-like as it gets right there. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. I'll cancel the record of debt. To say, and then he says, to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Because Paul likely led Philemon to Christ. Onesimus didn't have the resources to pay his debt, but in a show of what Jesus did for us all, Paul finds the resources that he pays for it. I, I likely think that, we don't know this, but Philemon likely was like, okay, uh, I'll just pay for it myself. This is what Jesus, we're going to look at that later in the series, but this is what Jesus did for us at the cross. This is why we sing, now my debt is paid. It's paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. See, the debt of even the smallest sin carries eternal consequences with it. That's not because God is mean. Hear this. It's not because God is mean. It's because God is good. 
and he's just, and he's holy. He's not just some angry, bloodthirsty tyrant in the sky who's sadistically waiting for any opportunity to hurt people. It's nonsense. He's not, he's not just up there, like, even willing to kill his own son. I've even heard people accuse God of child abuse or even infanticide. That is nonsense. That's a false caricature created by a hostile world that hates God and wants to twist this gospel of grace. That's a twisted caricature of who God is. In fact, remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Trinity. This was infanticide. This is completely self-sacrificial, not because of his anger, but because of his love. The true gospel requires this substitutionary atonement for true justification. But many reject it because it makes God seem mean. I... I'm, so, I'm, I'm not sorry to kind of, that is, that's crazy. Like John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It doesn't say God was so angry that he murdered his only son. Because substitutionary death was the necessary means through which Jesus accomplished victory over sin, death, and the enemy for good. If there was a better way, he would have done it. But this was the best way because it was his way, and Jesus is the way, and I trust him all the way. Final point. Jesus conquered sin and death through the resurrection, paving the way to eternal life that begins now. This is victorious. This is triumphant. This is not a, 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 a oh, this is so bad, and I'm so sad, and I'm so, no, this is victory. Your victory's been won. This is joyful, and it's a cause for like, praise and a life of overflowing worship and thanksgiving, which is the point. This is what he's saying. Be thankful. Look at what he's done for you. Colossians 2, verse 15, last verse, says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I want you to get this, because this is your victory. This is everything. Remember those rulers and authorities that we were talking about? Remember those guys? Those powers and principalities and the rulers of this dark age? Paul refers to them as the elemental spirits of this world. It's the forces that rule and reign over the disinherited nations. Right? This is a lot of kind of crazy language here, but it's all biblical language. Well, through the cross and resurrection, Jesus conquers and even humiliates those satanic forces. And he's given the nations for his inheritance. That's the kind of language that talks about who Jesus is. That the disinherited nations are now Christ's inheritance. If you're not Jewish, you would have been categorized in the disinherited nations category. You see this? Christ came for the Gentile. Go and make disciples of what? All nations! They're mine! It's the fulfillment of Genesis 12. I've blessed you to be a blessing to all nations. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the Savior. And Jesus is the King. And we've been called more than conquerors in Christ through the cross. But what does that even mean? This is a hard concept to grasp. Like how could a symbol of death be a symbol of victory? Quick illustration. I don't know if they still do this. But apparently the Eskimos used to have a ruthless way of killing wolves in the Arctic. You ever heard of this? They take a sharp double-edged blade, like the tip of a spear, and they dip it in seal blood, and then they, they let that blood freeze around it. 
And then they repeat the process over and over until they've essentially created like a sort of seal blood popsicle around the blade, okay? And then they take it and they stake it out in the snow outside, and eventually the wolves are irresistibly drawn to the smell of this blood, and they begin to ravenously lick the blood off of the blade. But eventually the blade is exposed, and it begins to slice open their tongues, but they can't tell the difference then between their own blood and the seal blood. And so they begin to bleed to death as they drink their own blood, subjugated by their own carnal appetites in the shadow of that open blade, they fall and die. And this is what sin does. The image, you can imagine the stark scarlet color of blood on the white snow as the enemy lays dead before the blade. This is what sin does. It has an irresistible draw on those who are gripped by it. But as we indulge, we do so to our own destruction. These are the tactics of the enemy on all who've been gripped by sin, and yet Jesus turned that very tactic back on the enemy at the cross. Like when you read the Gospels, you realize that there is this demonic darkness that builds all around Jesus as he goes to the cross. It's almost like all the evil in the world closes in upon him to devour him upon that cross. And so Satan must have been a bit confused, I think. Like I kind of imagine like he realizes that he's now able to torture and kill God in the flesh. Like that might have been a little confusing, but it would have been too much for him to resist. Like evil was drawn to the cross of Christ like wolves to the bloody blade, and yet it was evil's ruin. See, to torment and devour sinful humanity is in line with justice. Like death rules and reigns over the spiritually dead. There's a legal right to torture and torment and destroy the sinner. Satan's not simply the enemy to the condemned. He is their tormenting tyrant king in this world. And he has the legal right to plague and destroy because it's no more than we deserve outside of Christ's salvation. But to torment and devour God himself in the flesh was his ruin. You see, the cross isn't just the place where Jesus died. It's the place where the enemy was lured and undone. And now the cross stands like a cold and bloody blade of triumph with our conquered enemy beneath its feet. Even the language Paul uses about putting the enemy to open shame comes from the way conquering kings would enter cities after liberating them from tyranny. Like they'd enter a city with a processional parade, and at the back of that line of the parade, they would be, the, they would be leading the captured enemies uh, in chains and exposing them to open shame by those that they were uh, tyrannizing. So this is what Christ has done for us at the cross, should you receive it. This is our victory. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoices, though heaven had lost, but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You've made us new. Now life begins with you. Released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. And I cannot leave out this last verse. Now we are free, free, forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Yes, we're free, free, forever, amen. When death was arrested and my life began. 
Jesus, in my place. Let's pray.